The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 40, Mac Trek, part one of my interview with New York Times best-selling author David Mack, writer of many things Star Trek. And later in the episode, we'll have a new installment of All the Squee with Ella, wherein she discusses Frankenstein, the stage version starring two versions of Sherlock Holmes, Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. Now, on with the show. David Mack, welcome to Generations Geek. Hey, great to be here, man. Long time. I've been waiting for the invitation to come on the show, and it's a thrill to be here at long last. We're thrilled to have you. I say we in the in the royal sense because Ella is not actually with us here today because she's off at college. You see, the royal sense. I would have thought you'd have gone for the editorial we. <laughs> I didn't know that you were royalty. See, I learned something new about you all the time. I'm going to guess it's like Latvian royalty on like your second cousin's side yes, or something? Yes, yes. Okay. The uh, Lichtensteinian royal family. I see. Or maybe you were just knighted or something. <laughs> With a popsicle stick behind a 7-Eleven. Right. Where to start? You know, as I was doing my research... You do research? Occasionally. Well, wow. I glance at a bookshelf, maybe. I call it sure. research. Uh, Look I at mean, Wikipedia, call it yeah, a reliable source. Exactly. Even just Trek alone would be uh, overwhelming to discuss with you because you've written how many books in the Trek I, field? I believe I'm just about to finish writing my 26th Star Trek novel, Boom. and I'm about to start 26th. my 27th right after that. Uh, in total, I've written 30-some-odd novels for various franchises. Most of my work has been for Star Trek over the last uh, 16 years or so. I found out uh, through some online forum or other that I am currently the third most prolific writer of officially licensed Star Trek novels in the history of the franchise. Wow. Ahead of me in number two uh, is Michael Jan Friedman with 35 oh, mm -hmm. published Star Trek novels. And in number one, of course, is Peter David with, I believe... 45? Wow. I think he's written 45, Mike's written 35, I'm currently coming up on starting number 27, so I'd have a long way to go even just to catch up to Mike. Uh, not that I'm particularly gunning for the number two or number one spot, um, <laughs> although I'm in danger probably of being pushed out of number three imminently by Dayton Ward, who's coming up close behind me, I think, yeah. with his uh, 18th uh, Star Trek novel he's about to start writing, maybe his 19th, so he... He could be uh, close at, at my back at any time. Of course, this doesn't count novellas, yeah. short stories, comic books. If you take all those into account, Peter David is far and away ahead of everybody because he's written tons of comics, uh, you know, short stories and other stuff. Dayton, of course, has also written a ton of stuff in the shorter uh, novella format for the Star Trek Corps of Engineers yeah. series. And although I made some contributions to that series, I didn't do anywhere near as much work as Dayton and Kevin did. I'm sensing the need for some sort of Star Trek writer's 
grudge cage match thing where it's Friedman and David and you and Ward and we just let you go at each other. I really don't no think hold, anybody... No holds barred. Any, I don't think anybody <laughs> wants to see that. I think really it would come down to they put us in the cage and we'd all sort of just sit down and say, so, what's up? <laughs> I don't know, what's up with you? And it would basically be, you know, four middle-aged guys sitting in a cage just yakking for a few hours. Eventually everybody would write in and want their money back on the pay-per-view channel and <laughs> I, I just don't see this working out for anybody. So most of your publishing success has been in the Star Trek field. It makes me wonder, uh, what was your geek gateway? Was it Star Trek that turned you, or was there something else that uh, brought you down the path of sci-fi? I would say it was definitely Star Trek was my beginning, uh, uh, the beginning of my journey into geekdom. I grew up watching Star Trek in syndicated reruns as a child. And I think by the time I had finished elementary school, I had probably seen every episode three or four times. By the time I finished high school, I had probably seen them all a dozen times, 20 times. I could name an episode on site from just a single scene, uh, a particularly iconic shot, a snippet of music. I can go, oh, I know that music. That's a muck time. Oh, that's what our little girl's made of. You know, oh, oh, that's the fight music from, uh, you know, so-and-so. And, sure, uh, Right, you know, that'd be surely right there. You, know, you can tell because it's got that weird kind of jaunty circus sound. Yep. Uh, but, you know, so I, for me, it was definitely Star Trek was the beginning. Um, although from, again, a very young age, you know, around age eight is for me is when the first Star Wars movie came out. And uh, so, I mean, I love Star Wars as you know, well as Star Trek as a kid. I loved Logan's run. Buck Rogers in the 25th century, <laughs> uh, you know, yep. Space 1999. To this day, I regret that I did not keep and take better care of my Space 1999 Eagle, uh, which was like, you know, their, their very sort of NASA-inspired uh, ship that they would tootle around in. It had kind of like this funky-looking, uh, curvy nose cockpit piece attached to you know, a body that looks like it's made out of the, you know, the, the girders of a sky crane yeah. or something. I, uh, I love I, that I, ship. I love that ship. And I had one as a kid and I don't know, I guess I just must've either broken it or gotten tired of it. And, uh, or maybe it got sold at a yard sale by my parents. I, I have no idea whatever happened to it. I still have mine. Well, then I envy you. Because You're talking love, about that I, one. It's almost like three feet long. The big. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I yeah. still have it. I don't and have, it, and, and it detaches. The cockpit detaches. Yep. Yeah, yep. I love that thing. I don't know whatever happened to mine. I wish I still had it. I miss it. I think back on it longingly. That's like one of the few artifacts of my childhood that I wish I could get back, uh, along with my original set of twelve Star Wars action figures that I got for like Christmas in 1978. I never got into Space 1999. The the show itself never grabbed me, mm -hmm. but I love the uh, Jerry Anderson design aesthetic, you know, I, and, absolutely. And absolutely. I, and I love well, the, the story Eagle. was ridiculous. Yeah. I couldn't take it. I mean, much I, as tried. I you know, want to love, you know, Martin Landau and, uh, Barbara Bain, who he brought over, you know, with him from mission impossible. Yep. Uh, the show is, you know, laughable. It's ludicrous on, on its face. It's science is absolutely abysmal. Nothing about it really makes any sense anymore, but that design aesthetic, was very cool. The way it sort of took what you already knew about uh, the way NASA looked, you know, that very kind of utilitarian industrial look. Yeah. And then just sleeked it out a little bit. Added a little <laughs> yeah. bit of like a, 
you know, a futuristic curvy touch to just say, you know, there, there's the beginning of an evolution to something a little bit more graceful, a little more fluid. Uh, I, and I just, I love that quality of it. Did you watch his uh, previous show, UFO? No, I can't say that I did. Ah, see that? I, I, did, I did watch Project Blue Book as a kid. Um, along, along with the Incredible Hulk, you know, with that sad piano mm-hmm. music, you know, which is basically, you know, kung fu, but with a big green guy who breaks things. <laughs> okay, so Star Trek got you in, and then later in life, you got to go professional. And mm-hmm. we touched upon that already, but yeah, you've written short stories, novellas, novels, comics, teleplays, video game dialogue. Mm-hmm. Is is there? I'm trying to think. Is there a format that for for Star Trek storytelling that you haven't done? Feature film. Feature film. Okay, so yeah, pretty but, much. I've got. I, I've I've had the privilege of working on Star Trek in just about every medium. Yeah. That Star Trek does, except for the multi massively multiplayer online role playing game. Oh yeah, that's another. Yeah. So so I so I haven't worked for Star Trek Online. And I haven't had an opportunity to uh, write a film. And boy, would I love to write a Star Trek movie. If anybody out there who is (laughs) in a position to make that happen is listening right now. uh, I have some some ideas where to go with like the next uh, movie. You should just give me a call. I'm certain all the biggest people in Hollywood listen to my podcast. So uh, as soon as this airs, I'm sure that your phone will be ringing off the hook. Awesome. See, that's what I'm talking about. It's all about, you know, connections, you know, leveraging. Maybe we could hit some high points out of some of these uh, these formats. Well, I mean, I started at the very top, you know, writing for Star Trek Deep Space Nine back in 1995, and it's all been downhill from there. <laughs> so that was your first professional Star Trek writing gig? Yep. First professional writing uh, credit for Star Trek uh, was... On the show in 1995, I worked with John J. Ordover, who was my writing partner at the time. Uh, he was also, at the time, the editor in charge of acquiring uh, Star Trek novels for Pocket Books at Simon & Schuster. And we had teamed up uh, because I knew screenwriting and he had the connections to get us in the door. And therefore, we made a pretty good team. So I started out with that. We uh, made a couple of sales right off the bat in uh, February, March of 95. The first was to Voyager, and uh, we had sold them a story pitch uh, called Sick Bay. And as an audition for a possible script assignment, we sent over one of the spec scripts that we had written for Deep Space Nine, uh, a piece called Crown of Iron. And we sent it to Jerry because we knew that she could look at it because it wasn't for her show. Mm-hmm. So And she read it, and then because at that time the writing staff for both uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager were housed on the Paramount lot in the Hart building, when she heard through the grapevine in the building that John and I had made another sale uh, about a week later to Deep Space Nine, she walked downstairs to the office of Iris Stephen Bear, uh, who was then the showrunner of DS9, and she said, I heard you bought a story from Mac and Ordover. He said, yeah. She said, I bought one from them last week. Here's the audition script they sent me. She goes, I know it's tricky because it's for your show, but I read it. It's really good. Maybe you should give them a script assignment. Ira read our audition script, and he loved it enough that uh, we were offered a chance to do the teleplay on our first sale for DS9, even though neither of us had any teleplay writing experience <laughs> Uh, to speak of, uh, I mean, it's a pretty rare thing to get a script assignment on your first sale. Very yeah. often, 
new writers in Hollywood will sell story outlines, but the scripts will be written by people on staff working from the purchased story outline. So for us to have an audition script that was strong enough that they said, all right, we'll let you write a draft, that, that was a big deal. Yeah. And it's got us you know, uh, in the door, got me and John both into the Writers Guild. Um, and then, of course, you know, I had thought that you know, we were off to this auspicious beginning. We had these two sales in quick succession. DS9 was interested in a third idea. And then what happened was that for reasons that had nothing to do with our script uh, or our story, the story we sold to Voyager ended up not being produced. It didn't go forward from the story sale. So we got our money for that, but it didn't become anything. Um, and then we did the first gig for DS9. That got on the air in November of 95. That was Starship Down. And then the other idea that we pitched to DS9 sort of lingered in development in the writer's room for about three years before it finally morphed into the episode that became It's Only a Paper Moon in season seven. So those were sort of my early career highlights. Now, between the the first sales that happened in 95 and then the uh, episode that finally aired in 1999, in between those two, uh, I had started doing scut work around the pocket books office uh, in the Star Trek office, reading slush manuscripts, writing rejection letters. I started writing reference materials for other authors like Peter David and John mm -hmm. Vornholt. Uh, for Peter David, especially on his New Frontier series, because he was writing at a very rapid pace to keep up with the pressure of the deadlines. And he didn't always have time to keep track of all of these new original characters and places that he was creating out of whole cloth as he began, you know, for the first time in the history of Star Trek publishing to develop his own corner of the Star Trek universe, something that up to that point had not been done before. Yeah, and those those were coming out as these little, when they first published, they were these little uh, novelettes or novellas, and they were coming out like once a month or whatever, like a serial. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it would have been a crazy schedule. Yeah, so, right, so my job was to go through his manuscripts, pull out all the proper nouns that were original to his work, and then log any details that he established about them and then compile it in a mini-pedia format that he could then go to and say, all right, what have I established about this place, about this character? And he would go to the document I had compiled and he would see entry for this character and would say this character was established as, you know, female, uh, was described as tall, had this color hair, these color eyes, was related to this person, killed that person, did this, was here at this time, was known to be part of XYZ. And so that proved very useful to him. And from that, I graduated from that to uh, writing some supplemental material where a book had come up uh, short uh, of its targeted word count, and it was on a kind of a crash production schedule. And that was Genesis Wave Book One by John Vornholt. And they needed to get this book beefed up by about 5,000 words of content in 72 hours, over, <laughs> basically over the course of a weekend. So, oh, John, man. so I get a phone call from John Ordover saying, could you, over the weekend, in the next 72 hours, write 5,000 words in the form of a classified Starfleet military you know, report, like a, a top-secret classified dossier, all about the Genesis device. And of course, not being a fool, my answer was, yes, of course I can do that. I'll get back to you on Monday. 
And then I went and I wrote this thing in four parts, one part from the point of view of Starfleet in the 23rd century, one is a political report, one is a scientific report, and then the other is a follow-up report from a century later in the time period of Bornholtz's book, 24th century, mm-hmm. uh, all about the Genesis device. And it's written in a nonfiction format, like you're reading classified reports. And uh, and I managed to whip this thing out. And I, originally they were saying you know, maybe it would be something they would shove in the back of the book. And then they thought maybe it would be like a forward. They would put it at the front of the book as like a preamble. And then eventually what they ended up doing is they had Bornholt write a short framing sequence, a, a short scene as intro and a short scene as outro. Uh, and then they pasted this stuff in the middle and it became chapter 14 of the book. <laughs> and uh, I got a, an editorial, you know, credit for it in the back of the book and the acknowledgements, nice. which was very nice. And, and it was very gracious of John Bornholt to sort of write the framing sequence and allow yep. this to be shoehorned into his book. Um, and because I managed to pull that out in record time, I was then approached uh, a short time later with the opportunity to write a whole book, which became the Starfleet Survival Guide. The idea had been developed internally, and they basically came to me and said, look, we have this book idea. It's completely approved. We have an illustrator. We have a concept. It's you know sort of inspired by the worst-case scenario survival handbook, but for stuff that would only happen to you in the Star Trek universe. We want it written in that style can you write this book? And again, not being a fool, I said, yes, yes, I can. This is something that has come up on the podcast before with various guests. And we talk about that freelance, uh, attitude is that when someone asks you if you can do something, you'll always say yes. And then after you get off the phone, then you say, holy crap, how am I going to do how this? The hell, how, the hell am I, how the hell am I supposed to do this? <laughs> exactly. But somehow you, you know, you make it work, you pull yep. it off, you, you cash the check and then you spend it all on an emergency expense of some kind. <laughs> so yeah, I did the uh, Starfleet survival guide, proved I could finish a book. Based on that, I got invited to start pitching stories to what was then their new line of monthly eBooks Star Trek SCE, meaning Starfleet Corps of Engineers. I did some work for for SCE, uh, got some pretty good acclaim, good reviews, good sales on some of my work for that, uh, especially on my first solo work, which was Wildfire, first piece of narrative prose I did solo for Star Trek. And based on the strength of that, I was invited to do a two-book thing for John as part of the A Time Two nine book miniseries that was published in 2004 mm-hmm. and uh the second volume that i did for that it was basically two two books back to back a time to kill followed by a time to heal a time to heal hit the usa today list and between good reviews and good sales again that was what led to marco palmieri then inviting me to work with him developing and creating the vanguard series which remains for me one of the creative highlights of my entire tenure at uh, Star Trek, along with the Star Trek Destiny trilogy, which came about around 2008. And uh, since then, I've just been, you know, sort of trying to pull my weight along with everybody else and continue (laughs) to contribute to the ongoing narrative. Uh, I had one other trilogy called Equations in 2012. And I've sort of been carving out my own little niche with uh, the Doctor Bashir versus Section Thirty One storyline, which Indeed. has played out, which has played out in several of my books now, uh, including the upcoming Star Trek Section Thirty One Control, which will be out in March of uh, twenty seventeen. So I've I've sort of been just sort of doing that, and now of course I'm finishing up 
my first book that is specifically under the Star Trek Titan banner. Um, it's going to be Star Trek Titan Fortune of War. I think that'll be out at the end of 2017. Uh, it's not going to be your usual Titan novel. It's going to be a little more action-focused because, well, it's me. <laughs> and uh, then as soon as I finish that, I'm probably going to finish writing that book by the end of this week. And the moment it's done and off to my editors, I have to then turn my brain 100% to uh, working on the Star Trek Discovery novel, the first novel based on the new Star Trek TV series. Indeed. I know that you cannot uh, really talk about it, so I think we should just have a moment of silence and allow the fans to just squee amongst themselves about the new series and a new book. You may now squee. <laughs> I'm very excited about the uh, casting news that has been coming out. There is, yeah, it was definitely some very impressive news. Yeah, I'm a big Michelle fan of Michelle Yeoh. Yes, big fan of hers. Uh, thrilled to see her uh, involved with the project. I'm looking forward to writing uh, material for her character. She's obviously going to be part of the book that I'll be working on. There are, as you pointed out, details that I am privy to that I cannot. I cannot share. I cannot discuss. I have to be very careful. I've been told many times by uh, John Van Sitters of CBS Licensing that there are snipers watching me at all times with parabolic microphones and high power yep. rifles. And if I let slip anything, they take them out. Take them out. Pow! Done. And of course, I imagine one of these days they're going to look over and they're going to see some guy from the NSA and they're going to go, hey, we got here first. This guy's <laughs> ours. So go get your own. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, essentially th there's uh, a lot of good ideas that are floating around. We've had some false starts there as, as fans, I'm sure know there have been some unexpected delays in the production of the show and the premiere of the show, but it's good. And that, you know, from my standpoint and that those delays have given me more time to reflect on the project yes. and develop what I think is going to be a stronger story. I'm working very closely with Kirsten Beyer who uh, I'm sure many of your listeners and many fans of Star Trek uh, literature know is one of the more popular Star Trek novelists out there. She's been working on the Voyager books as the sole writer on that. She took over from, uh, I believe, Christy Golden yep. uh, some time back. We had her on the show for uh, the 20th anniversary of Voyager and had a lovely chat with her. Fantastic. Well, as I'm sure your listeners know, she's now on the writing staff at Star Trek Discovery. She's also serving as their chief liaison to the publishing arm at, at the Star Trek office at Simon & Schuster. So I'm basically in pretty regular contact with Kirsten, and uh, I'm in the loop on things like uh, you know the, 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 the teleplays, the story outlines, uh, whenever sort of new directions are being bandied about in the writer's room, Kirsten keeps me in the loop on that. So we've been throwing ideas back and forth. I'll come up with ideas, and then she'll build on those and come back with others. She'll tell me about things that are being worked on that I might be able to incorporate into the book or which might uh, have ramifications for things I'm already contemplating putting in the book. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's going to be a lot of really interesting stuff going on. It's going to be... A very fun, uh, you know, very true to the spirit of Star Trek type of book. It's basically going to be, uh, I think, a book about uh, forgiveness, a book about hope. I think it's going to be uh, a very, uh, you know, pro 
science, uh, pro-knowledge, pro-understanding, pro-peace kind of book. So again, very Star Trek in that regard. And I think it's going to be exactly the kind of Star Trek vision that uh, fans are going to need more of going forward. Both Ella and I are so excited about the new series. And although Brian Fuller has had to uh, move on because he had a lot on his plate, so he's not going to be the the daily showrunner, but we know that he's put his imprint on this show. And looking at the work that he's done in the past just gives one a lot of hope that they that this is just going to be a solid, great new Star Trek show. So. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great ideas that I saw, even in just the first draft of the pilot script. And while I know that there are, as always, going to be rewrites happening right up to the moment they shoot, uh, his creative uh, vision is going to continue to inspire the work that the team is doing. I mean, he's left uh, two of his top lieutenants, people who have worked with him for a long time, who know his style very well, who know his vision uh, those, of course, being Gretchen Berg and Aaron Harberts. And, yeah, they were on uh, Pushing Daisies with him, mm-hmm. I believe. Yep. And Ella and I really enjoyed that show. And oh, my, uh, my wife and I loved Pushing Daisies. That was one yeah. of our favorite shows. We were so heartbroken when it didn't come back after season two. It was one of those shows that was, you want to say, it was just too good for the medium, yeah. you know. It was too smart. Too quirky, was, too, you know, it was just, idiot, it had everything. Very, it was very idiosyncratic. Yeah. But it was also just visually beautiful. It was creatively inspired. It didn't look or sound like anything else out there. It had its, a very unique voice that we just adored. Unfortunately, I just, you know, realized that, you know, it's one of those things where it was it was designed to appeal to people of that sensibility and there just aren't enough of us unfortunately to uh support a tv show like that in a broadcast commercial broadcast yeah. media had it been a show that had bowed on netflix i think it might have developed a cult following and lasted a bit longer than that's it did. that's exactly what i was going to say is that it would work fine in that model of course you know i know that there are probably fans out there grumbling oh the new star trek should be on netflix well it is everywhere except the united states and canada <laughs> So if if you'd like to get it on Netflix, just, you know, move to Germany or something. <laughs> I'm curious about, you wrote for some of the uh, Star Trek uh, computer games. A few. I did dialogue and some other material. I never did story work. Though. Yeah, so I'm very curious about that process. I assume that you were then having to write sort of branching dialogue for different situations. What is that like? Well, the way it was given to me at the time, and I don't know if it's still done this way, but I suspect it is, is I was given an Excel spreadsheet and a general story document. I was told, these are the situations for which we need dialogue uh, written. Um, and it would be, for instance, you know, the scene where the landing party encounters uh, you know, incoming fire or the landing party investigates this weird object. And they would say, you know, different characters need to make either different observations so that the sense of gameplay changes based on the point of view character selected by the player, or just to reflect the personality of the character, Mm -hmm. etc. And so, for instance, I would have to find like five different ways to say, take cover, (laughs) <laughs> uh, based on you know who was saying the line, take cover, get down, hit the dirt. Basically, uh, it was an exercise in synonym finding uh, more than anything. Um, 
And then, of course, uh, you do it all in this sort of table format so that you can sort of see, you know, for situation A, for response B, uh, and, you know, you've got sort of these threaded things that say, you know, from this character saying this, the next line would go to. And so you'd have to think, you know, do these lines flow from this character to that character? Um, so I was basically following, you know, a, a very limited amount of information. Like I wasn't made privy to the overarching plot of the game. Mm-hmm. I was given just enough information to know what was happening in each scene, what they wanted conveyed. And what they wanted most of all was a, for the unique voices of each character to come through because they had the actors in most cases voicing their characters. So they just wanted to make sure that the writing reflected the voice uh, of those characters. And the other thing was that they wanted the techno babble filled in. They would have like, you know, just like in a real Star Trek script, uh, before it went to the science advisors, they would have, you know, something tech the tech. And so part of my job as techno geek back in my 20s was to go through this and figure out what the proper tech was. Because uh, I had the, you know, encyclopedia. Plus, I just, I at the time, back in my 20s, I knew all of this techno babble, like the back of my hand, I could rattle it off. I understood like all of the weird fictional, uh, you know, conceits behind, you know, the warp drive, the transporter. I knew the names of all the MacGuffins (laughs) and I would concoct these elaborate stories that, you know, relied heavily on knowing exactly how these components work because otherwise, you know, it just, it didn't make sense. Why didn't they just tech that tech? Uh, (laughs) Of course, you know, the funny thing is now, you know, here we are 20 some odd years later and I'm like, tech who gives a crap about the tech story <laughs> stories aren't about tech stories are about people if you get lost in the tech you've missed the mark you, you you've bungled it of course i didn't understand that in my 20s you know it's only now you know much later that i go well, well the tech is just there to facilitate the story uh, there are ways around the tech you mm-hmm. don't always you don't always have to tech the tech that that's an interesting difference between the original series and the new stuff because the original series was just like scotty fix it okay cross-circuiting to a yeah and circuiting to b and then in next generation then it really started building this this uh reputation for having chief can you reverse the polaron flow and the isometric uh, (laughs) capacitor doohickey whatamajig i thought but then we have this problem yeah oh shut up (laughs) is it working not yet that's all you really need yeah what will it take to get it working well, I could do with a miracle. You don't have one. Fix it. <laughs> Over the course of your Trek career, you have developed a reputation for bringing the death. Angel of death. Yes. And Not always true. I was going to say, perhaps you have mixed feelings about that. Well, how do you feel about, having, about that rep? Uh, I was not thrilled with it at first. I mean, I understood how it came about. It was a response to my Starfleet Corps of Engineers uh, short novel, Wildfire, which was my first work of prose written solo. Like The the first work of prose I did, narrative prose for Star Trek, was uh, SCE Invincible, which I co-wrote with my buddy Keith DeCandido, uh, who I give all the credit in the world to for helping get me into this in the first place and sort of, you know, showing me the ropes and Mm -hmm. not... But Wildfire was my first time going solo, and it is a particularly brutal story in that you know, you've got this – you have to understand the context. SCE, for the readers or listeners who are not uh, 
familiar with it, was a monthly series of ebooks. So each month, uh, a novella length ebook would come out, and it was written in a serialized format. So even though it was very episodic, with each story kind of being standalone for the most part, there were also serialized story arcs, and the continuity from one story would be respected by the next story. And so little by little, the relationships between the characters were being built month to month. Uh, the little conflicts that would build up would get resolved, but then would deepen the relationships month to month, etc. So by the time my two-parter Wildfire comes about, as uh, installments number 23 and number 24, at the end of a two-year period of readers getting to know and like and become emotionally invested in these characters who they see a new story about every month, suddenly along comes you know, uh, installment number 23, Wildfire Part 1, and by the end of it, half the crew is dead. I've wiped out half of them, and it's basically, you know, uh, it was my take on sort of sort of the classic Trek uh, phenomenon of the ship goes on a somehow really dangerous mission, and something goes terribly wrong, and yet somehow in the show, casualties are always limited to a few people who you never really heard of down in engineering. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and ship takes critical damage and then and somehow always manages to salvage itself and save the day. And nobody really important ever gets hurt, except you've got the one guy who always goes on a suicide mission to save the ship and then somehow doesn't end up dead. And this always drove me nuts. And it drove my editors, Keith DeCandido and John Ordover, equally nuts. And so they told me specifically during the story development phase for the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series, which was one of the first original things being developed after Peter David had proved with New Frontier that original literary series set in the Star Trek universe could be popular and successful. They said, we want to give death back its teeth, at least in the context of Starfleet Corps of Engineers. They said, and we think you're the guy to do it. I said, okay. So I concoct the story, and at the end of like the first half, the ship you know, has had one of these moments where everything goes wrong, gets the crap pummeled out of it. Half the crew, including characters that you know, you've been following now for two years, just get wiped out. And it's fast and it's brutal. It's basically like you know, that moment in a submarine film when the hull is breaching, compartments are flooding, and people are making those you know, split-second snap judgments. Kieran Duffy. Well, that was part two. <laughs> but they're making these split-second judgments where, you know, if I close the hatch, I die. But if I don't close the hatch, we lose the ship. And people are just sacrificing themselves left and right. And training is kicking in, and you're just watching people go to their death, one after another. Um, and the thing is, because the ship was so small in the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series, it had a total crew complement of only about 45 people, that, you know, by the time you got to, you know, installment 23, you had met pretty much almost everybody on board they'd been established they had you know names unique characteristics personalities there were no faceless extras it was a, like a little community that you'd gotten to know and then suddenly i just took half of them off the board in uh you know installment 23 and then in installment 24 they're just fighting to stay alive as they're slipping deeper and deeper into you know trouble. The ship is failing by degrees. The situation is getting worse. It's getting worse. And then we have essentially the male uh, lead of the series, the love interest to the female main character of the series, 
Uh, and I will say it's interesting, the new Discovery show making a big deal about how it's the female first officer is the lead, and isn't that innovative? We, we did it 16 <laughs> years ago on Starfleet Corps of Engineers. But, I hey, we're not about that. But we're visionaries, so you know yeah. that's to be expected. Um, <laughs> but you know, essentially, we, we have the male lead, who's her love interest. He goes off on the you know suicide mission to save the ship, and uh, here's the twist. He dies. And because we knew the rules in the Star Trek universe, which is that if he dies, even if he dies on screen, if you don't produce the body and you have any kind of super-powered aliens whose <laughs> capacities we don't know, if you don't produce the body, the character could plausibly, through some weird science ex machina, deus ex machina you know, contrivance, yeah. be brought back at a future date by another author. And that's going to happen inevitably in any series where you have parallel universes and alternate dimensions and whatever but at least in this universe i made a specific decision that at the end of the story the aliens who they've now sort of you know sorted things out with give back his body a sort of a peace offering and the crew goes out and they bring him aboard they try everything they can't resuscitate him i basically did the thing you need to do to make it stick i yeah. produced the body mm -hmm. and i left him dead on the deck just dead done <laughs> not coming back no magic no reset button nothing and it ends with essentially you know the relationships the friendships on the ship some of them are you know stronger than ever but some have been shattered the trust and the you know faith between captain and xo has been uh, shattered pretty badly uh, sonia gomez the xo is now in basically she's emotionally crushed She's lost the guy that she loved, who she was thinking of marrying. Um, and the book ends on her absolute you know, descent into despair and, and grief and depression. The book is an unapologetic tragedy. There's no uh, release. There's no, uh, you know, no mercy, no silver lining at the end of it. It's just it's a brutal, dark book. And I can imagine, despite the fact that it got great reviews sold really well and got enough notice from the editors that it allowed me to move up from the eBooks to the paperbacks, sort of like, you know, a pitcher being called up from triple a ball to the majors. Yep. Um, despite all that, the one thing that seems to have stuck from it more than anything is the fans calling me the angel of death. <laughs> well, there's a couple things that comes with that because you said the thing about bringing death back or whatever, making it real. Yeah. So when you do a story like this, well, for one thing, you get to see so many of the characters at their best. Yes. Uh, it's like, yes, it's horrible that they died, but they die well. They die doing what they want to do. They die sacrificing themselves to save other people's. And so you're seeing them performing, the, you know, that, that, that greatest of sacrifices. And if you don't occasionally have the courage to kill people in fiction... Mm-hmm. Yeah, then it does lose its teeth. Well, I think the other thing to remember is that part of my inspiration uh, in terms of the story for Wildfire is I put that together. I'd written the outline before 9-11, and originally I had been planning on co-writing it with Keith uh, mm -hmm. the way I had with Invincible. But after 9-11, uh, which as a New Yorker had a very profound effect on me, I mean, I remember standing in the street on 6th Avenue and watching the Trade Centers fall, um, 
and it was just one of those things where after that event, I felt like I needed to write that story on my own, in my own words. Mm -hmm. It felt like a switch had flipped in my brain, and I said, I need to start being the primary voice of these stories. I don't want to be filtered anymore. It's time for me to step up and start doing this. And with Keith's help and, uh, and guidance, I was able to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think part of, as you say, you know, the fact that these characters, we see them at their best, even as they're meeting terrible fates. Uh, it was inspired very much by watching cops and EMTs yeah. and firefighters charging into collapsing buildings on 9-11. I think that was a big part of it. And there's something amongst that kind of tragedy. There's something uplifting and ennobling about the people that do make the sacrifice there's there's two poles to it because there's the sadness of the tragedy but then there's the fact of how these people died and and what they did through their deaths that still can give you hope it affirms that it affirms yeah. the nature of life to struggle against the to rage against the dying of the light yeah to quote, to quote the poem and i think you see this again the same sort of sentiment and same idea writ even larger in the Star Trek Destiny trilogy, which was essentially treating the Borg no longer as assimilators, but as annihilators, yeah. as a force of nature, essentially, uh, as a natural disaster sort of, you know, or an unnatural disaster, as the case may be, washing over all of known space and seeing how characters choose uh you know to cope with this some meet it with nobility and courage and some do not there are mm -hmm. a number of characters throughout uh the destiny trilogy some just sort of go berserk and you know go down swinging just because they're like wild animals pushed to the limit there are some who just lose composure and try to run uh and have to be sort of you know taken down and controlled for the good of the many. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody comes out noble. Not everybody comes out a hero in that. Uh, and that was, again, you know, sort of a, a, taking a deeper dive into that sort of, uh, of a story. Uh, I feel like Wildfire and Destiny are very much spiritual cousins mm -hmm. uh, within my body of work. Thus ends part one of the David Mack interview. Next up is a little segment we like to call All the Squee. Take it away, Ella. All right, this is All the Squee, and today I'm going to talk about uh, the play Frankenstein with Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, which I saw a recording of in October when it came back to theaters for one night only. And I actually had my dad come on to All the Squee as well because I unfortunately haven't read the book. So he has a little bit more insight onto the original story format. I love the original novel Frankenstein. I've read it, I don't know how many times, and I have multiple editions of it. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, so I went in with almost no... Well, what I realized was almost no knowledge of what the original Frankenstein actually was. I had a completely different... Uh, sort of plot that I thought was going to play out in my head and it ended up being totally different and just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would guess that most of your perception of Frankenstein is influenced by some of the movie versions, even though you haven't really seen those. 
mm-hmm. and, and they're they are quite a bit different from the mm-hmm. original novel. So even without having read the book, it was an amazing performance. I was so entertained and so happy, and it was so awesome to see it in October because I felt super Halloweeny. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that struck me first was um, the beginning of the play. The first scene actually is sort of um, this birth scene where, well, the version I saw was Benedict Cumberbatch as uh, Frankenstein's monster and John Lee Miller as Dr. Frankenstein because they actually um, switched roles every night when they actually did it on stage. So the first scene is basically Benedict Cumberbatch as the monster learning how to walk and run. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was like a, probably a solid 15 minutes of Benedict Cumberbatch first just like flopping around on the ground like a fish (laughs) and then like sort of climbing to his feet like a deer or a giraffe and just the movement that he managed to like portray was just really convincing and because it was um sort of a one night special uh they also showed um some interviews with the cast and uh crew and a lot of it was Benedict Cumberbatch talking about how much research they did into how he should speak at first versus the end of the play and how he should move at first versus the end of the play. And that they looked at um, stroke victims because when you have a really bad stroke, sometimes you sort of have to relearn how to, you know, use your mouth or talk or relearn how to walk. And so... That makes sense. Yeah. Since he's built from parts, Yeah. you would think that his reanimated brain has some memory of this stuff but mm-hmm. it's paired with different body parts so that's yeah a really great analogy for them to look at it that way yeah it was it was really amazing and again it was just so convincing well and then i especially was super entertained just because in my head the frankenstein story was just sort of like Doctor creates monster, monster escapes castle, and then is the classic, like, villagers chasing (laughs) the monster with torches and, like, pitchforks. But, you know, I went in to watch it, and it was, like, after the whole scene with him walking around, there's, like, 45 seconds of Johnny Johnny Lee Miller as the doctor on stage basically comes on and be like, what have I done? Get out of here! Go! And he, like, white fangs the monster. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the things that really interested me when you first started telling me about it, because that's when I realized that they were following the original story more closely uh, than the classic Boris Karloff version, which has influenced Mm -hmm. so many other versions, um, because that's the kind of general idea you had of the story beforehand. Oh, definitely. But it's a very important thematic element of the original novel that the doctor rejects the creature after bringing him back to life. Obviously, when I was watching it, I was, like, sad because I was, like, empathetic for the monster because he's, like, basically a toddler, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then afterwards, I was like, you make this creature, like, you sew it together (laughs) and then bring it to life, and then the second it kind of stands up and is like, oh, hello, like, you're just like, no, I'm done. But he he doesn't even attempt... He doesn't even attempt to, like... Maybe I should corral it. How do I fix what I've done? He's just like, get out of here. <laughs> like, goes back to life as usual. Yeah, that, it sets in motion the whole tragedy of the story. Because although the way the monster or the creature responds is bad, 
<laughs> well, at first, though, right? At first, it's not... I don't think the bad really comes until the end. Yeah. At first, he's just sort of like this abandoned child. Yeah, you, you are... You feel so sorry for him right from the beginning because it's it's none of his fault. Mm-hmm. Well, and then immediately after that, there's like a scene where he's just sort of wandering and there's grass on the stage and it starts to rain and you can hear birds and crickets and he starts like playing and then kind of falls over in the grass and like tries to eat it and then sort of spits it out and it's just (laughs) being like kind of like cute almost Mm -hmm. which is then immediately interrupted um by a train it's like he's wandering onto some train tracks and there's some people and he wanders into a town i think he gets driven off a couple times and so it starts to be a little bit more sad because he keeps meeting people and he tries to talk to them every time and then they're just and then when they see him they're like what are you like monster go away yep until he meets that old blind man as you were watching it were you distracted at all by thinking well what would johnny lee miller have done you know not at all actually i well i hope that i can eventually see both versions because i'm kind of curious but as much as i love johnny lee miller you know, the only thing I've seen him in is uh, Elementary. Hmm. Um, so I kind of have a respect for his talent through that, but um, am much more of a fan of uh, Benedict's, I would say. And so once I realized that most of the screen time, you'd call it, is actually in the presence of the monster, follows the monster's story, and um, the doctor's really just in the beginning and the end, I was pretty glad that the version... I was able to see was Benedict's. I didn't really feel distracted just because obviously Johnny Lee Miller did an amazing job as the doctor and I was honestly just so taken with Benedict's performance that I I didn't really need to wonder. Mm-hmm. I think if I had seen Johnny I would have been like well what would Benedict have done? <laughs> Sorry. I... Sorry Mr. Miller. <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard that they were doing this I felt that Benedict's nature would lend itself more to the creature and and Johnny Lee yeah, Miller more <laughs> to the doctor and just <laughs> but on the other hand if my gut reaction is that's the sort of traditional casting maybe mm-hmm. it would be more interesting yeah, to then oh, see the reverse well I also I think of Benedict as more of a like a full body actor and again I've never seen Johnny Lee Miller in anything but elementary but Whenever I see Benedict Cumberbatch in anything, he's very much, I don't know how you would describe it, but like even, let's say in Sherlock, but cut to a close-up of just his face, Mm -hmm. and the most motion is in his eyes, and he still, with just his eyes, communicates so much to the audience Mm -hmm. that I think for him, a role like Frankenstein, who... um, you know, has to learn to speak, can't really speak, and can't really walk mm-hmm. at the beginning of the play, um, would lend itself to be a lot more interesting, at least from Perhaps. my perspective. Although it occurs to me that one of the things I enjoy about Miller's performance in Elementary is his physicality, the, the how much he uses uh, body language. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's upset, he like leans toward people. Oh, definitely, and, yeah. And, he's... <laughs> and so maybe I'm shortchanging him by, by not thinking that he's that he's better for the Doctor than the creature. He would definitely give a stunning performance as well, but just like, I don't know, from my perspective, I was much more excited to see Benny as the monster and Johnny as mm-hmm. the Doctor. 
I just kind of want to nerd out about it. Like, all when yeah. like, people ask me, I just kind of say the same stuff over and over. Because it's like, <laughs> oh, it was amazing. Oh, it was gorgeous. Oh, they were both so fantastic. They were, everyone was fantastic. Like, I just can't. <laughs> what was your favorite scene in this particular staging? Oh, gosh. Maybe the scene where he meets Dr. Frankenstein's little brother. And at first he's like kind of playing with the kids and the kids are like, oh, kind of like, okay, like this dude, like his acting kind of weird, but all right. And then the rest of the kids run away and he's just kind of there and he realizes who, well, and in, in the production I saw, he just swooped off the kid and had him like on his shoulders. And it's when he's on his shoulders that he realizes who he is and just the immediate change of the situation and for the first time you kind of realize that he's that uh the character of the monster is kind of going in a <laughs> in a bad direction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's uh starting to uh want more revenge sort of for his being rejected from his creator yeah it's interesting how bad the creature goes uh, yeah, it went very quickly. It was like there was no redemption arc. Yeah, there, you kinda, possible. <laughs> like you, you kind of have to wonder, you know, what's the motivation there? Are we are we just to assume that it, it maybe it's related to the fact that he's reanimated, that his brain just isn't quite right anymore, that that's why he's unable to express himself fully without resorting to the horrible yeah. violence? Mm -hmm. Because you understand and sympathize with his anger at the doctor well because essentially his father completely just abandoned him yes. in the middle of the wilderness and then he's pushed away by almost everyone he yep. meets and mm -hmm. so he feels so uh betrayed by everyone around him that then yeah, well, he the only lashes person, out yeah the only violently. person that accepted him was the blind man and who his, couldn't see him and and some of the children who some of the, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because <laughs> they get... seemed not quite convinced. Yeah, well, because, and that's something that recurs in a lot of the adaptations is that you have a sort of innocent child character who basically hasn't been taught enough by adults to fear everything that looks different. Yeah, oh my God. And so the child is more accepting of the creature. I just have to, there was like a... A Christmas commercial this year for some that was like, oh, hold on, that was like for Amazon or something. Do you know what I'm talking I think, about? I think it was Apple, and wasn't it? I have no idea. And it's like Frankenstein in the mountains, and he gets like two like Christmas light bulbs delivered to himself in the mountains, and he like screws them into like his neck, yeah. and then goes down into the town and he's like singing, but then everyone's everyone's freaked out. But then they join in, and his light goes out, and a little yeah. girl steps forward, like flicks it, and it turns back on, and then starts singing. It was. Such, I cried every time. It was such an. Uh, I mean, you know, it was meant to be sincere, <laughs> but. The whole image is just so ridiculous that I didn't necessarily find it an effective ad. Oh my ad, gosh. If you don't mind my jumping around a little bit, one of the things that I'm very curious about is the ending. Because it opens with the creation scene. Yes. Which, that jumps into the novel quite a ways because the story... It's kind of an, in the original novel, we have a nested story where you start out with the captain of a ship 
And then the captain of the ship, they pick up the doctor. And the doctor starts telling a story. And then eventually, in the doctor's story, it's when the doctor meets up with the creature after the creature has learned to speak. And then the creature tells him his story. And it seems like they... So so they condense that down, understandably so. Yeah. But then... Where does it end up? Because then in the book, it eventually, you come back out through those layers until it ends with the doctor finishes his story and and dies. And then the ship captain eventually finds the creature. And then the creature wanders off into the Arctic wastelands at the end. And I'm wondering how they wrapped it up in this one. What I would call sort of the final, like, confrontation happens in his house in his bedroom immediately following the mutilation and death of his wife. Mm -hmm. But then the monster actually gets away. The doctor understandably is like, well, I'm going to follow and destroy him because I created him. And then, uh, that follows the original novel that, uh, the doctor goes off, you know, chasing him across the world and eventually into the, uh, Arctic because the doctor can't seem to quite bring himself to shoot the mm-hmm. monster and just end it right there. And mm-hmm. so he gets away. And then, um, yeah, they they go into the Arctic. And this was visually stunning on stage. Oh, so they do the do they... the Arctic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're like crawling oh. across. The... And there's like wind blowing. It's amazing. Oh, I was they're thinking They're all like they... bundled up. It's crazy. I was thinking they might have cut that out. No. That, I'm glad. So it stays even more true to the novel than I guess. Yeah, and they really gave the impression that it took... A long freaking time. Mm-hmm. And then the Dr. Victor sort of gives up and just kind of lies down mm-hmm. in the snow to die. And um, the monster like runs back to him and tries to sort of wake him up and tells him that he loves him and like gives him wine and some food. I mean, I think it seemed like he was just kind of gone, mm-hmm. but he does kind of wake up. And the creature asks the doctor to put him out of his misery, put them both out of their misery, and then they sort of just walk on stage. At least they walked into this white light. Mm -hmm. But it could have, you know, it could have, that seemed sort of up to interpretation to me because it could have just been like they're walking across during a snowstorm. And they're just going to Or they're freeze. dying because yeah. they're in the Arctic Circle and it's cold. <laughs> yeah. Well, in as I mentioned, in the book, the doctor dies aboard the ship. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the creature finds him. Yeah. And so the captain then meets the creature that he's heard all these stories about. Mm-hmm. And the creature is, is uh, you know, over Victor's body. And then the creature leaves the ship and just wanders out into the waste to die, to freeze to death. And so, although they have them walk off together into the, in uh, the play, yeah, uh, having them just kind of walk off into the Arctic wastes is still relatively true to the, to the novel. But yeah, the only a- time there was a ship in, in the uh, play was when the doctor sort of negotiates with uh, the monster and leaves to create him a wife oh, he goes mm-hmm. to scotland if i'm pretty sure it was scotland. so they had that in there as well mystery mystery uk location because that's um an 
element of the novel, which was left out of the Boris Karloff original movie, but then they picked it up in the sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein, and came back to that. So it really sounds... I, I really like the sound of this adaptation. Yeah, and it, they it was did really the, amazing. They did the kind of streamlining necessary to make a novel into a stage play, and yet they maintained a lot of the structural points of the original novel. Makes me even that much more eager to see it. And, well, and perhaps just a quick explanation for people who aren't familiar with it. So, as we touched upon earlier, this was originally a live stage performance. Mm-hmm. And the two of them swapped roles every night. Yes. And, and it, was in, it was in 2011. It was in yeah, live production and, in 2011. And they recorded the whole thing. And, but it's part of the contract that I think it was Benedict that was really behind this, is that he wanted this to remain a theatrical experience. And so the contract stipulated that this is not to be released to DVD that it is only to be enjoyed in the theater. So which I understand but also like every you know so every year around <laughs> Halloween uh they often then it gets replayed in movie theaters and I don't even know like when you bought the tickets you didn't know which version you were getting. No, I didn't. I bought tickets i realized there were going to be one night showings of frankenstein and hamlet and i immediately bought my tickets by myself because i was in the <laughs> in duluth in the middle of nowhere with no nerdy friends <laughs> and <laughs> but it was worth it it was good yeah and i wonder i mean since it was only a one night performance i wonder if there was multiple showings if they like if you had bought two tickets for you know one showing and the next showing, if you would have seen both. Oh my gosh! Or if they only. I think it was only at one time though. At least the theater I went to, I think it was just like eight o'clock, and that was it. Yeah, and I would assume that they would probably do the Benedict as the creature version if they're only showing mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Since Benny C is a little bit more of a. Yeah, well, and gargantuan to, name around yeah. the world than Johnny Lee Miller. I tried to figure out who it was, and I couldn't, but I was also like, I really don't care. Like, I'm going to see it. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to. Because I didn't see it in 2011. You mentioned, like a, a, like, a rainstorm, and you mentioned this Arctic business. Were there any other really amazing things they did as far as the stagecraft that, that blew your mind that God, they pulled everything. this off? Yeah, the rain and the grass were really stunning. Um... The Arctic scenes were amazing. And then they also, I think I mentioned the train before. At one point, a train comes yeah. in. And it's amazing. It's maybe, like, would be, like, my shoulder height, how high the train is. And there's, like, the whistle blowing, and there's, like, people hanging off of it and, like, yelling. And, like, immediately the, just the sound and so the So is vibe. that a, is that, was that a physical effect or was it a projection? No, physical. Physical wow. train drives onto the stage. Everyone's yelling and like clanging stuff together. The mood immediately changes because there's just all this noise. Because this is immediately after he's like playing in the grass. Mm -hmm. He's like playing in the grass and birds are singing. And then it's like boom, and there's just all of this mechanical sound. And yeah, that was. I that don't remember was a really train surprising. being. Um, 
prominently used in the novel like that. Maybe I'm just not remembering it, but that sounds like a really good addition to Yeah, it was. to to show this this uh you know how cruelly he's just thrust out into the world without any real understanding of what's going yeah. on around mm-hmm. him. It's a little bit less isolated perhaps than in the original novel, but uh in this stage play you have to keep things moving. Mm-hmm. And, and and so that, that sounds like a really good... There was also... One thing I didn't mention is that at the beginning, uh, during, like, his birth scene, sort of, he's in this... I really... I've been describing it describing it to people as, like, a circular shark egg. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, anyone's knowledge of shark eggs. <laughs> but they're, they're kind of see-through. Like, you can just see, like, sort of a shadow inside... Yeah when the little baby shark is moving around. And that's exactly how it was. Well, and it was upright and had like a base on the stage. And so it was sitting there, but it had exactly that material. And when you start watching, it's like the play hasn't started yet. And so the audience is like still talking and stuff, but it's moving around like the stage is spinning Mm -hmm. very slowly. But, um, you can see Benedict inside of it. And he's like moving around, like pressing his palms against the, (laughs) I don't know what to call it, um, and like, you, but you can see it stretching and stuff. And then when the play actually starts, he like he like rips out of it and like crawls, and it's super weird and like kind of creepy because he's like crawling mm-hmm. out of this thing. It's always interesting to see what film or stage adaptations do with the creation sequence because the novel gives almost no details whatsoever. You know, I just want to actually read you the creation sequence, and this isn't until uh, chapter four of the book. But here's what we get. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Instruments of life. Yeah, so that's all you get. It just He says instruments of life, which, uh, like in the Boris Karloff version, it gets expanded into all this great electrical equipment with arcs and sparks mm-hmm. and things going on. And... Uh, but then it's kind of anticlimactic. It's like the creature just kind of like opens his eyes and there he is. But then in this stage version, they do this great thing with like this embryo egg thing. and Yeah, it was weird. They have to come up with some way to visualize it in the, almost the complete absence of any details in the original novel. So it's it's interesting to hear how they approached it. Yeah, there was no, there wasn't even like a scene where like the doctor was preparing to make it. It just started with Benedict crawling out of an egg thing. Well, and what uh, what happens is, because he's on the stage and it's sort of spinning and you can see him in there, um, but then um, the lights come... Well, what happens is a dude fully in costume like rings this bell in the middle of the audience and then the lights go down. And another thing I've been having a hard time explaining to people is above the stage and out over the audience there were all of these like light bulbs hanging in kind of like kind of like like a wave like hanging down from the ceiling and 
there was kind of this sound, like a almost like a drum beating or like a heartbeat or something, and the lights would flash. Well, not flash, but they would get bright and then go back to dim, mm-hmm. and it was faster and faster and faster until there was like one big one and a huge sound and then after that he was kind of crawling out and they kept reusing those lights throughout the play they were always on and during scenes they would like i said before get bright really bright and then go back to being dim and stuff or there'd be like a wave of light going through them so when you're sitting in the movie theater watching Mm -hmm. the screen Mm -hmm. do you actually see the audience of the stage play sometimes yeah so it really does give you the sense of sitting yeah. in the theater watching a play. Well, and also, I was wondering, you know, like, how many people were going to show up in Duluth, Minnesota to a showing mm-hmm. of Frankenstein. But in front of me, there were actually, like, a bunch of theater kids from UMD. And so they were all being very, like, intense about <laughs> it. Um, well, because mm-hmm. there, was, there was an intermission. Um, and so during intermission, they would all, they were all, like, sitting there and, like, talking. And I was just sitting there, like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Like, they know what they're talking about. So it was, it was like, me and then a bunch of theater kids and then, like, two older couples and then, like, three girls there who I think were there just because they love Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> One thing that did make me, like, really mad, though, was when it's, like, he's been friends with this old blind man for, like, a long time. But he never stays long enough to meet his family because he's like, no, they'll hate me and they'll reject me and then I can't come back. Mm-hmm. But then finally he does meet the family and basically he's saved their lives because he did all the work in their fields that made them able to be farmed. And so they can sell their crops and eat their crops. And so basically their lives have been saved and then he meets them and they freak and out. just like he knew they would. And I was like, I was just like, you know, lady. Humans are awful. Lady. (laughs) And is that where he learned to speak and read and such? Yeah. That's like, because that follows the pattern of the book. It's like, lady, two scenes ago, you were talking about how you could never have kids and you were going to be poor and die (laughs) because there was too much work to do on your horrible land to make it farmable. And then... This magic monster comes in and does all your work for you, and you just think that it had like God did it. I don't know. There's a scene where they're like, "Oh my gosh, all the rocks are gone, all the sticks are gone. It's yep. amazing," and they like celebrate, and it's like, "Look, here's the dude who made that happen," but you reject him. Thanks. Because he's a hideous, reanimated creature. Yeah, <laughs> Rude. it's sad. But if you want to talk about like really good stagecraft, the the mansion and Hamlet. And this was the other. Benedict Cumberbatch starring stage play that Mm -hmm. was then replayed in a movie theater that you saw. Correct. (laughs) Because they staged it during a war, and I couldn't really get a handle on what war it was, if it was World War I or World War II or what Mm -hmm. was going on. But, um, so over the course of the play, it is turning to, like, ruin Oh, and so like it's rubble. Like, it's like being bombed out progressively yeah, as the... Yeah, So at the end of the play, they're like running. There's literally like these giant mounds of just rubble. And they like run across them. That was really great. And then also the way they had um, the, the ghost of his dad mm-hmm. up here was also done really, really well. Because he was kind of, you know, green and like glowy. Mm-hmm. Like Very, ghosts are. Like ghosts are. In a very ghosty way. Very authentic. 
and how would you compare Benedict's performance in these two wildly different characters? You know, I really felt nothing during Hamlet. Hamlet didn't grab you for some reason. Not even when he killed, he stabbed somebody by accident. Like, he kills this old man, and then he's running from ever. Like, not even then. And I'm not sure if it was his performance or if it was the script or the direction. And that's another thing. I've never actually read Hamlet. Yeah. So... I was a little bit more familiar with the actual plot line of Hamlet than I was of Frankenstein, but I just don't have anything to, to say about <laughs> it. I also, a lot of my problem with Hamlet, it's Hamlet, it's like the main, one of the main female characters, Ophelia. The crazy one. <laughs> the crazy one. Yeah. It's like, anytime she walked on stage, she was just like crying and like trembling and like her hair was messy there's a lot of and mixed feelings about that character skinny and like you could just like like snap her in half like mm -hmm. a twig and i was like what's uh what's up with this it's a character that has not uh aged well for the modern yeah. audience because well and the actress who played her did a very good job of looking like she was about to break down and kill herself or kill someone else mm -hmm. any minute uh, or just kind of crumble into a pile of ash. <laughs> um. Or wander off onto an Arctic ice floe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just kind of walk away. Or... Okay. Well, and also the, watching Frankenstein, I was just kind of sitting there like... <laughs> I'm such an artist. Sitting there like, yes, Mary Shelley. Because I'm just kind of like, just in this full like feminist... Mm -hmm lens like women created science fiction that like just kind of going to the theater like yes <laughs> and <laughs> that was a lot of my thoughts during Frankenstein. science yes. i was just like yes mary shelley killing yes it. and that actually brings up an interesting controversy as they would say in england about the novel is that since mary shelley was married to the famous writer percy shelley mm -hmm. uh over the uh, centuries, there have been lots of people who have doubted how much Mary wrote and have wanted to, you know, sort of give the book to Percy, but... They can fight me. <laughs> they, well, the people who say that haven't really done their research because you can actually look at the mm -hmm. original manuscripts because, of course, we're talking olden days when manuscripts were handwritten. So you can actually look at the manuscript and you can discern the different penmanship, and you can see the manuscript in Mary's hand, and then you can see where when Percy read her manuscript, mm -hmm. he would make edits and suggestions, and you can see where those were. And it's clear that the manuscript that exists that's in her hand is the novel. I mean, mm -hmm. she wrote it. And yes, Percy helped her out because he was a more seasoned writer, but he was an editor. She wrote it. And, yeah. and and anyone who wants to steal it from Mary and give it to Percy, you're, you're just wrong. Yeah, Mary wrote they can, it. they can square up. And they can fight. <laughs> they can fight my daughter over it, apparently. <laughs> Def, well, that's the other thing is that people talk about, like, I'm just going to go into a full rant. People talk about the rise of women in geekdom or science fiction fantasy. Nah. <laughs> we always been here. Y'all just don't pay any attention to us. <laughs> That's all I have to say. I'm angry. <laughs> 
that's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for episode 41, Midnight Mac, part two of the David Mac interview. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a nostalgic alternate universe where you can only watch Star Trek reruns in the afternoon after you get home from school. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>